Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. Each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome back to the As A Woman podcast. Today, we are going to be talking about marijuana and its impact on fertility, both male and female. The reality is people have asked this question for a long time. And when marijuana was universally illegal, we really didn't have many studies, except when somebody felt like reporting that they had used marijuana. However, as time has passed, and now we are seeing different legalities in different states, we're actually able to study things a lot more. And we've had more and more emerging research, which is extremely interesting, on the impact that marijuana or cannabis as a toxin has. And I'm going to use the word loosely, and I'll try to distinguish when we talk about studies, but in general, what I'm going to be talking about is combining any form of cannabis, whether it's edible or a gummy, whether you're smoking something, because studies are all a little bit different, but tend to show the same thing. Before we dive in, a few housekeeping items. One is that every week I do a segment called For Fertility's Sake at the end of the episode. This is where I answer some of your questions that you ask. These questions are put on Instagram every Monday at Natalie Crawford MD. Now, leave your question and some will get answered here in the podcast, some will get answered on Instagram, and some will get answered actually in the newsletter. So we send out a newsletter, we aim for every week, but you know we're not perfect. But you can sign up for the newsletter at nataliecrawfordmd.com slash newsletter. And that will get you answers to some fertility questions, updates on fertility in the news, some of my favorite recipes, things, and just overall updates for life and things I want you to know about. Love you guys so much with this community. And I will say that this episode is airing at the very end of National Infertility Awareness Week. I have two deep dive educational courses, Enhance Your Natural Fertility and the IVF course. And both of those are 20% off right now. So the code is NIAW20 and you can get 20% off either or both courses. It's jam-packed, full of content. You get a Facebook group access while I answer your questions. And we have monthly live Q&A calls that are also recorded if you can't join. Ultimately, it's an amazing community, over 250 people and come and join us. All right, well, now we're going to dive in to the topic at hand, and that is going to be talking all about marijuana. All right, well, let's start with animal studies. Although animal studies are not the gold standard for human studies, I think we can all admit you can sometimes gain data from animals in a way you can't from human studies because you cannot force somebody to use a potentially toxic substance and then evaluate the outcomes. However, you can do that for animals. All human studies are going to be observational, and they're going to be based on reporting. And so those are limitations of human studies, the end. Animal studies clearly show that using marijuana or any form of cannabis impacts the brain. So the primary place of marijuana action is on the hypothalamus. And as we know, hormones, GnRH, gonadotropin releasing hormone from the hypothalamus acts on the pituitary gland to control many hormones, but specifically LH and FSH. In the female reproductive tract, FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone, is what is released to grow a follicle or an egg. As this egg grows, it makes estrogen. It then ovulates, and once estrogen is a high enough level, 
The ovulation signal comes from LH from the brain. Then you ovulate, and then that LH is really important in allowing the corpus luteum to make progesterone. In males, what happens is LH is important for testosterone production and FSH is important for sperm production. So these hormones across the board for males or females, LH and FSH, are crucial and essential for gamete formation, eggs and sperm, getting to maturity. What we know in animal studies is that even short-term use can interfere with this HPO or HPT, hypothalamus pituitary ovarian, hypothalamus pituitary testes. Short answer, it interferes with this axis and it disrupts the hypothalamus from being able to secrete anything to the pituitary gland and we see lower levels and inappropriate secretion of FSH and LH in both males and females, therefore disrupting both ovulation and production of sperm and testosterone. Well, that's huge, right? We know that chronic use, the impact is even more pronounced. And this is in animal studies, specifically in men. So because sperm are so fragile, remember that women have all the eggs they're ever going to have, but because sperm are so fragile and they are created, chronic use can completely suppress the ability of the body to form normal sperm and can put men into a low T state, therefore making them feel really bad, right? This is a chronic cycle. So then your body's not making testosterone, you have fatigue, you don't have energy, you don't have libido, you get anxious, you use more pot, the circle continues. And with chronic use of marijuana, specifically chronic THC in an edible form, a study showed that increasing the doses, the more you consumed, there was a dose-dependent relationship of increasing menstrual cycle length, showing more ovulatory dysfunction. Remember that we think of ovulation disorders on a spectrum, normal, regular, lovely cycles, shortening of the luteal phase, so maybe shortening your cycles actually, then having your cycles start to become spaced out or irregular, and eventually going full on into amenorrhea. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No my shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperature starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan, 
It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. Okay, so animal studies have definitely confirmed that marijuana use can impact the brain being able to send out the hormones needed for both ovulation or growing an egg to maturity and spermatogenesis and testosterone production. When we look at human studies in females, the vast majority are going to be observational looking at fertility or time to pregnancy. So did you have a higher incidence of infertility because you use marijuana or a longer time to pregnancy? Huge issue is that Only a small amount of people would report using marijuana in these surveys. One study had 13%. However, if we look worldwide, marijuana is the most commonly used drug worldwide, and we think the prevalence of people who consume it is much higher than 13%. There's a lot of issues with natural fertility studies anyway because they're all observational-based. You guys know I have a love for fecundability studies, but essentially we've had mixed. There was one classic original study that showed using marijuana within one year of trying to conceive had twice the rate of infertility than if you did not use it at all. There have been some small retrospective studies that didn't see any difference, but most recently there was evidence in a study of people who've had pregnancy loss that showed that people who had marijuana had more sex, but they had a lower chance of getting pregnant and a higher chance of pregnancy loss. And to me, that's pretty alarming. It's not the first time you're going to hear that. Okay. What about if we look at marijuana use and IVF? Okay. IVF, we actually get a lot more data when we're doing IVF studies. And that's nice because we can see more distinct data. In a study of 221 couples, women who had smoked marijuana within a year prior to undergoing IVF had 25% fewer eggs retrieved, 28% fewer eggs fertilized. Okay, so you've used it at all in the year. We're seeing you're getting less eggs and you're having a lower fert rate. Further, if we looked at studies who had pregnancy loss after IVF, marijuana users had double the chance of having a pregnancy loss after IVF compared to non-smokers. And I think those numbers are pretty striking. If we want to take it down to another level, in a study looking at eggs in the lab, they used THC in the culture dish, replicating what would be in serum levels for an average user, and they saw that these eggs in the lab failed to develop appropriately, failed to complete meiosis 2, failed to have normal levels of DNA. So does marijuana impact your egg quality? All signs point to yes. Does this mean people who use marijuana or THC can never get pregnant? No, no, none of these numbers are absolute. Because every time I talk about this, somebody comes at me and says, well, I know so-and-so who's a big pothead and they got pregnant. Easy peasy. Of course, none of these numbers are zero. However, if you're having trouble getting pregnant, or if you're going to do IVF and you're going to shell out a lot of money, or if you've waited this long, do you not want to optimize everything you can? Do you not want to have the highest chance of getting the most eggs with the best quality DNA? and having the best sperm, and having the most fertilized, and the most embryos grow, and a lower chance of miscarriage. 
That's what I want for my patients. All right, and if we talk about human studies on men, what we are seeing is very much the same thing. We're seeing a decrease in both secretion of LH and FSH. We're also seeing a decrease in LH receptor expression in the testes the longer you use. This is why research is suggesting that the longer and the more use you have, the smaller your testicular size is going to be. Testicular atrophy is definitely seen in animals, mice, rats, dog studies, and has been reported in human studies as well. And then all animal and human studies confirm that the worst impact for male reproductive health is impact on sperm parameters. So sperm is impacted from marijuana use. So animal studies show that using normal amounts of THC decrease sperm production and cause an increase in arrest of development. Human studies, especially in men who are coming in for an infertility evaluation, are showing decreased sperm counts with more THC use having lower sperm counts. And in a Danish study, we saw people People who use THC one time per week had dramatically lower sperm counts than people who never have. So users versus non-users, we show difference even if it's not chronic or daily or a lot of use. And that is just for the amount of sperm produced, which is directly tied to FSH secretion from the brain. So that makes sense. But very interestingly, the other thing we're seeing is that THC use impacts sperm morphology or the shape of the sperm. So not just telling the testes to make less sperm, but they're actually going in and that environment is changing the shape of the sperm. So we know that teratospermia or abnormally shaped sperm is an issue for infertility and it's actually something we have a harder time treating. And then the list goes on. We see decreased motility immediately after THC exposure. So the sperm receptor that needs to activate for them to move, immediate decrease in the sperm's ability to move. There is an association between increased THC exposure and altered DNA methylation of the sperm. This is huge as we think this impacts genes and development and has a direct correlation with miscarriage or non-viable embryos. We're also seeing clinical issues like erectile dysfunction is higher in people who chronically use marijuana. They have a harder time having an orgasm even if they have an erection. Even though acute use of marijuana can be an aphrodisiac and can be good for having increased sex, chronic use is showing that it is harder and associated with more orgasmic disorders in men. Harder for men to reach an orgasm the more they use marijuana or if they have daily or chronic use. And that's certainly going to make it harder to get pregnant. All right, well then let's talk about pregnancy because we know that THC crosses the placenta. That is not up for debate that has been seen. And so anything that crosses the placenta, one can have fetal effects and two can impact the placenta. I think sometimes people who are outside of medicine don't really understand that almost every OBGYN will tell you the placenta is one of the most amazing things. Let's just think for a moment that an embryo comes in, has the ability to attach to maternal blood supply in the uterus and form this placenta that exchanges oxygen and nutrients and filters out a lot of bad things, protecting the baby and allowing for its growth and survival. But across the board, when we think of some of the worst pregnancy outcomes, it all comes from abnormal placentation or issues with the placenta. 
Maybe it wasn't able to develop that attachment as strong as we would like it to. Maybe it separates from the wall early. Maybe it is smaller. And what we see is that because THC crosses the placenta, it also is having issues with the functioning of the placenta. So things like growth restriction, the baby's not growing as it should. That is an issue and that has been seen in studies looking at THC use in pregnancy. And the idea that people are not using marijuana in pregnancy is just false. It is the most common drug used during pregnancy and more than half of current marijuana users continue to use through pregnancy. And some reasons why people cite use is commonly for anti-nausea, and that is often in the first trimester, which is an extremely vulnerable time for the pregnancy. This is when the placenta is developing, and this is when the baby's organs are starting to form. And so seeing things like growth restriction, an increase in preterm birth, an increase in placenta abruption, that is devastating. That is when the placenta separates from the wall of the uterus. Immediately, this becomes an emergency. The baby's not getting blood. Mom is bleeding inside her uterus. And if you are not inside a hospital when that happens, the odds of the baby surviving are extremely small. And then we've also seen higher risks of both low birth weight, admission to NICU, and death within one year of a baby if there was prenatal use of cannabis during the pregnancy. Stillbirth. Okay, so the baby dying in utero has been mixed. So stillbirth data has been mixed, but there was a very large case control study done by the Stillbirth Collaborative Research Network, and it found that marijuana use was significantly associated with stillbirth, more than two times the odds. However, many of those people also use tobacco, and tobacco is clearly and known to be associated with stillbirth. So that is not as clear of a result. However, by the mechanism, by the impact on the placenta and these other outcomes we are seeing, I think it makes sense that it probably intensifies the effects of other things which contribute to stillbirth. Okay, and then ending with use of marijuana in pregnancy, there's not been clear data to establish a very strong connection between prenatal marijuana use and childhood outcomes like sudden infant death syndrome or SIDS, academic issues, or later substance abuse. But when they look at the large studies that exist looking at children whose were exposed to maternal marijuana use, these range from 1970 to 2001, so hopefully we'll have new data soon. But this data is suggesting that babies who are exposed to marijuana in utero have an increased incidence of having an abnormal response to certain stimuli, like they get anxious more, they have gaps for problem-solving skills and memory, they have higher rate of anxiety and depression, decreased attention spans, and there was also an association between prenatal marijuana use and autism spectrum disorders. So I think that those things, in addition to everything else, should compel you that marijuana is something that should not be consumed during pregnancy. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. 
I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. That is definitely the recommendation from every organization. It is not viewed as a treatment for nausea or for any of your pregnancy related symptoms. Now, if you are clearly tracking and trying to get pregnant and choosing to avoid marijuana once you are, I think it's really important to know that if you're having trouble getting pregnant, all of those fertility related things we talked about at the beginning, abnormal ovulation, abnormal periods, abnormal sperm, concentration and morphology, increased risk of miscarriage, increase in having lower egg count, having lower fertilization, lower embryo development, that stuff, those pregnancy rates, like that would matter to me if I was going through fertility treatments. Importantly for male data, and we didn't really touch on this, there have been recent studies looking at discontinuation improves things. And I think that's huge, right? Because we know that the sperm cycles. So if your partner is a big marijuana user and they stop, fantastic. We see reversal of some of these outcomes. Now, it's going to take at minimum three months. It might take longer, but that is really great. I do think for women, we expect the same thing. And so that's good. That means that what you've done in the past is not expected to carry forward. That's actually in contrast to smoking cigarettes, y'all. So if you smoke cigarettes as a female, that cigarette smoking is known to decrease both the quality and the quantity of your eggs. We don't have that data on marijuana or cannabis use. Maybe we're going to have it eventually, but all the data now supports, hey, stop it, give your body some time, and things should get better. So if you're looking to get pregnant, my recommendation, stop. If you're going through fertility treatments, y'all, stop it. Fertility is hard enough. And I understand that this is a coping mechanism that some people use, but it is creating a circle that is potentially making your journey harder. And I am not here to judge by any means. I am just here to give you data because I think so often people don't talk about these things. And maybe you think, I know all these people who got pregnant and they smoked pot, not a big deal, but your experience is unique to you. The incidence of infertility is increasing. We now are quoting one out of six couples are going to experience infertility. One out of four female physicians. These numbers are on the increase. Why? It's not just delayed childbearing. It's got to be the world around us, the environment we live in, and what we allow our bodies to be exposed to. And I just want to remind you one more time, this impacts males too. So do not think this is just a female-related issue. Infertility is a couple's disease. If smoking one time per week was associated with an increase in pregnancy loss. Pregnancy loss, we think that's from DNA damage inside the sperm's head. So you need to have honest and open discussions with your partner if you're trying to conceive. This is a time for you both to get healthy, to feel better, to avoid things which could have outcomes that make this chapter of your life even harder. I am not here to judge. I understand people get pregnant using toxic substances all the time, but I see a very select portion of the population. And trust me, there are so many times somebody will say to me, I had no idea that doing X was causing this problem that we're having. And I'm here to break all that down. We're now going to jump into For Fertility's Sake. This is our weekly Q&A where I answer your questions. 
You can ask these questions on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD every Monday. We will answer questions on Instagram, here on the podcast, and then also in the newsletter. A reminder that you can sign up for the newsletter at nataliecrawfordmd.com slash newsletter. We also do question episodes where I answer your questions from voicemail, and these are some of my favorite, and we are getting a great pile of voicemail, so we're going to be doing even more of these. So if you want to call and leave a question, you can call 657-229-3672. Again, that is 657-229-3672. Leave a voicemail, and I cannot wait to answer your question. All right, what advice do you have for trying to conceive after a miscarriage? Y'all, I have been there. The very best advice I have is actually one, Pay close attention to your body and listen to your gut. If anything seems off, go get an evaluation or see a doctor. If somebody tells you no and they're not explaining why, see somebody else. Currently, you should get pregnancy loss evaluation after two miscarriages. And that consists of blood work and imaging of the uterus to make sure that everything is structurally normal. So if somebody is telling you no and you've had multiple losses, they're not the right person for you. Second thing, It's not your fault. You did not cause your loss, but take this as an opportunity to get yourself as healthy as you can be for that next pregnancy. So focus on what you can control. You could not control the outcome of the pregnancy. That mindset is not going to serve you, but you can control your day-to-day, how much sleep you get, how you take care of yourself, how you enjoy your time, how you eat, that you avoid toxins, and that you treat your body as kindly as you should. So you focus on those things. And then pay attention to if your body is shifting. So make sure you're tracking your cycles, you're understanding your ovulation. If anything seems off with that, you are going and talking to somebody about it because we see things like thyroid and prolactin can contribute to abnormal ovulation or pregnancy loss. I lost my period when I got on birth control and then I didn't get it back when I stopped. Do I have PCOS? A few different things can happen when you go on birth control pills. And if you lose your period, then most of the time, this is from the chronic progesterone exposure to the uterine lining, thinning it out. So option one, you're actually ovulating perfectly fine. Just the uterine lining has not seen enough unopposed estrogen. That means estrogen in the absence of progesterone. This is what you normally see in the first two weeks of the cycle. And the lining hasn't grown thick enough to actually bleed. So option one is just a thinned out lining from long-term pill use, that will improve over time. But you're actually ovulating and making hormones. Number two, you're not ovulating. Now, is this because of the birth control pill? No, but the birth control pill, because of how it is giving you estrogen and progesterone, can stop you from realizing the two most common things that can contribute to not ovulating. So one is actually hypothalamic amenorrhea. This is when your brain is not sending out FSH or LH and therefore the ovaries are not growing an egg or making estrogen. In this case, you are estrogen deficient. Your body had estrogen when you took the birth control pill, so you did not know this. And actually that's good because it's not good to be estrogen deficient for a long time. But now that you've stopped the pill, you might have some estrogen low symptoms, like hypoestrogen symptoms. And the longer this goes on, the worse that they are. Some of these can be fatigue. You can get vaginal dryness. You might have mental dulling or headaches and overall low energy and low libido. Hypothalamic amenorrhea can be caused by a variety of things. The origin is your body is too stressed to have a baby. 
So the brain interprets the stress and does not allow FSH and LH to be sent out. Now, caloric deficiency, you're losing weight, you're exercising a ton, you're running a marathon, you're a professional athlete, you're a figure skater, or you're just intensely exercising. You're chronically ill, so you're under a lot of stress, or you're truly under a lot of psychological stress. A variety of these things can all contribute to hypothalamic amenorrhea. And in this case, you're not ovulating, you're not going to ovulate without help, it can take years to overcome it, depending on what potentially caused it can help you try to reverse it, but it still will take a long time, and you need estrogen replacement. On the other end, you have PCOS. PCOS is almost the other end of the spectrum. The brain is sending out FSH and LH, but because there's so many eggs in the ovaries, that signal is getting diluted. Each of these small eggs is making a little bit of estrogen, and because you have a high number, your baseline estrogen is fine, so you don't really have the low estrogen symptoms, but it's enough estrogen to prevent the brain from sending out a stronger signal or getting an egg to grow. Now, PCOS often gets worse when you come off the pill because The birth control pill that you take increases something called sex hormone binding globulin from the liver. This is cool. It binds testosterone, lowers your testosterone, improves your skin and your acne. But when you stop the pill, suddenly you're going to see an increase in testosterone, which is typically something that people with PCOS struggle with. Because as the ovary is not making high levels of estrogen, it then chooses to make high levels of testosterone. So therefore, you're going to see the longer you've been off the pill, an increase in potentially acne or skin worsening. You might develop an increase in insulin resistance or even some central weight gain, in addition to some of the other symptoms of PCOS, like irregular or absent periods. You can't really know this very often on your own, and so you're going to need to go get an evaluation. And then there's a few other things that can cause typically irregular, not absent periods, but can, things like hyperlactin and abnormal thyroid. So the take-home message is that most doctors will tell you, hey, if you stop the pill and your periods aren't normal three months later, you need to go get an evaluation. Why do we see three months? It is not because the birth control pill takes three months to get out of your system. The birth control pill is rapidly out of your system. But because of number one, because a lot of people do get a thin lining from this chronic progesterone use, especially with modern age pills, which have lower levels of estrogen in them, and people who are on the pill like not having a period for the most part. So we are seeing more of this. So the reason why somebody will say, wait three months, is because we want to give your body time to grow enough of a lining to show us what is really happening. This is why I tell people, you should stop the pill three to six months before you want to get pregnant. Obviously use condoms if you're having intercourse, but this gives us time to seek out if there's some ovulatory problem or some issue with your lining that we otherwise didn't know. Side note is we see problem one with a Mirena IUD also, or any type of progesterone IUD. Progesterone IUDs can impact ovulation, but often don't, but they work by impacting the endometrium or the lining. So chronically thinned lining is a big issue, and then that can impact your ability to observe how your periods are. So the same thing applies when you remove your IUD. I recommend three to six months before you wanna get pregnant. That way you can see what your real period pattern is, and get an evaluation sooner than later. Can IBS affect fertility? This is an interesting one. So irritable bowel syndrome, can it impact fertility? Well, a lot of people think there's a huge overlap with IBS diagnosis and endometriosis, which is another inflammatory disease that can definitely disrupt your digestion. Because of this, an endometriosis is definitely something that impacts your fertility. Yeah, people with IBS often 
have an underlying endo diagnosis or definitely have a higher risk of having that. So I think that understanding that anything that causes inflammation in your body, IBS is literally irritable bowel syndrome and we think the irritability comes from inflammation. That is going to make your body less happy place for a pregnancy and can have multiple impacts. So there's a A lot of mixed data out here. There's also evidence that PCOS with the abnormal hormone secretion predisposes people to having irritable bowel syndrome. And then we see things like maternal irritable bowel syndrome has a higher risk of being associated with miscarriage or ectopic pregnancy. And then overall, people who had unexplained infertility had a higher incidence of having a GI disorder, one of which was IBS. So I think that, yes, there's some connecting mechanism. I don't think we have all the answers. But I think trying to figure out what controls your IBS, making sure you don't have an associated gynecologic condition, that's what you can do. So what makes you feel better? Listen to your body, modify your diet, treat yourself kindly. Those things are extremely important in the presence of a GI disease. Are ovarian cysts a side effect from the IVF injections? Okay, guys, tricky question. So what is a cyst? Quiz. A cyst is a fluid-filled structure inside the body. What is a follicle? A follicle is a fluid-filled structure inside the body that grows an egg. So yes, the injections you use for IVF cause the body to grow multiple follicles, whereas the body normally grows one. Therefore, instead of having one cyst in the follicular phase or one follicle, which is normal, now you're going to have multiple cysts or multiple follicles, all also normal. After the egg retrieval, many of these follicles form corpus luteums. In a natural cycle, the follicle ovulates and becomes a corpus luteum, also a cyst. So cysts are extremely normal in female reproductive health. If you are not taking hormonal contraception and I go do an ultrasound on you most days of the month, you're going to have a cyst in your body, okay? There's very few days at the start of your period that you're not going to when your corpus luteum has healed and you've not yet recruited new follicles. I mean, you really have small cysts. They're called antral follicles, but you wouldn't have a large one. So I want us to stop this idea that a cyst is always bad. Cysts can be functional. Functional cysts make your hormones. That's how the ovary works. So yes, in IVF, you make many follicles. Those are cysts. You make many corpus luteum. Those are cysts. Does it sometimes take you a while to heal from an egg retrieval? Like if you have an ultrasound a couple weeks later, might you still have a cyst or a leftover corpus luteum? Yes, that is okay. And the more eggs you have, the more likely that is. Is that most people know. So I believe the spirit of the question is, does IVF cause you to have like new permanent cysts or problematic cysts? And the answer there is no. But understanding that, yeah, cysts are follicles and that's a normal part of the process and what we want, hopefully that helps answer it. All right, friends. Well, I hope this helped answer some questions. Again, I am not judging about marijuana use. I have plenty of friends who have plenty of fun with it. It has never been my cup of tea. I always get super sick. That's just like not my thing. But I am just here to provide you data. You deserve to know the truth. What you do with the information, that is up to you. As always, I love you being here. Please feel free to ask questions on Mondays on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. Sign up for the newsletter, nataliecrawfordmd.com slash newsletter. And stay tuned for more For Fertility Sakes questions answered every single week. Thanks, friends. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. 
It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, and check out the YouTube channel Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.